Let's dive right into week five of our Advent series. This is the final Sunday. It's Christmas Eve. And so let's go ahead and dive right in. We've looked at Christmas chronology, and we've kind of picked out some treasures from the timeline of Christ's birth. If you've been here for Advent series, you've known that it's the treasure of providence, the treasure of our salvation, the treasure of the incarnation, last week the treasure of kingship, all of this, of course, from Matthew 1 and 2. That's been our root text in this series. And this morning, as we conclude our Advent series on this final day of Advent, I want us to look at the treasure of worship. If your Bible there, or your phone, or maybe your journal, just to open that up, Matthew chapter 2. And as you do, to help us kind of set ourselves in the right framework for what we're going to see for the next few minutes, I've told you several times this season that this is the most doctrinal time of the year, right? We say that often in, in humor, but it's also one of the most worshipful times of the year, and rightly so. Unfortunately, sometimes we get distracted, detoured, even we become dismissive about worship during Christmas. Things like our shopping lists and the culture and our schedules, they lean in on us. And we can, albeit unintentionally, forget that this is a very worshipful time of the year and should be. I was reminded of this three weeks ago today. It was December 3rd and I was struggling to realize this is the most worshipful time of the year. On that Sunday... Our small group was supposed to start going to the live streaming venue. And so I just went up there that morning just as things began to kind of greet my small group and see them and see who else is up there and just kind of say hello to folks. And so I made my way down here later than normal, was seeing some folks, and I came in towards the end of the first song and just kind of scanned the crowd and began to watch and just kind of look at our people and pretty full room that day and just seemed like folks were still getting settled, situated. In all honesty, perhaps seemed a little disconnected, maybe like the participation level seemed a little low, but it's the first song. A lot of folks were still coming in. We went to our congregational prayer and our responsive reading, and by that time I would made my way over to the right of that booth as you're facing the platform. Again, I was just kind of watching you, not saying that's a healthy thing to do, but I was a little concerned that it just seemed a little like, why aren't we more engaged? And I started thinking, well, apparently I'm not that engaged either. I'm more worried about you than I am my own heart. And at that moment, I noticed to my right one of our members. His name is Stephen. In fact, he's back there right now in his usual spot right next to Jim and next to that post. Stephen's blind. And he's been coming for years, and he comes with Jim, who picks him up. And what caught my attention was Stephen was just kind of raising his hand and, I don't want to say rocking, but kind of swaying. He just was enjoying that second song, and he was into it. And, and I began to feel convicted, not necessarily for you, for me. Like, I'm not near as engaged as he is in this moment. I mean, Stephen doesn't need the screen for the words. And in that moment, I watched one of our members have a clearer vision 
of what worship was than I had. In fact, than most of you had. He was adoring Jesus and I was analyzing people. Maybe you've done that at times. No sooner had that happened than I looked in front of me and I saw Tyler Rose. On that week, he was just in the back of this section. Tyler's wheelchair bound, so he comes in with his mom, John, and his, excuse me, his mom, John, and his dad, his mom, Ann, and his dad, John. And, and Tyler has cerebral palsy. He has some autistic uh, situations as well. And one of his arms doesn't work at all, hardly. He's just got functional use of one hand and one arm. And he struggles to really say much that's understandable. But in that moment, I looked at him. He kept raising his arm and putting it down and kind of reaching. And so I thought maybe he was trying to reposition himself in his wheelchair. Maybe he was in some pain or uncomfortable so I kind of peered around like that and noticed his mouth moving, his head was back, and I realized he had joined the Stephen Club. <laughs> and he was worshiping. And with the only arm he could use, and with words you probably couldn't understand, but God could, he was standing up in his heart and praising King Jesus. While I continued to analyze people, he was adoring Christ. Maybe you've done that at times. You see, sometimes we take our cues in worship uh, from the wrong people. We're watching the wrong people, which is one of the reasons we don't really fully engage in worship. These two gentlemen, they were watching one person. Jesus Christ the king. Here's what I think. I think Stephen and Tyler would have been really good friends with the Magi. You know, those guys we commonly refer to as the wise men. There was probably more than three of them. It was a, probably a pretty big entourage. They'd traveled a long ways. And they worshiped Christ. Can I show you where I find this? It's in the same story we looked at last week, but I want to just select two verses from Matthew chapter 2, and I want to just focus in on them this morning and really enjoy the treasure of worship within the timeline of Christ's birth. It's these two verses in Matthew 2. In fact, could you just read them with me out loud on this Christmas Eve together? When they saw the star... They were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What we see here really are, are four simple things that modify one verb. The main verb here is that they worshiped him. Do you see that in the text? If you have your journal, maybe your Bible, circle that. This is really the culminating verb. It's the main point. They'd been on a month's long journey. They had been seeking this king of the Jews. They'd come with curiosity. They'd, they're very inquisitive. They'd come based on solid evidence from Daniel's writing, I believe, that was in Babylon after the exile. They'd traveled a long way and they finally discovered and saw the one they'd been searching for. 
And their response was worship. The word means to lean forward and kiss. It means to bow, to lean in. This is what they did when they saw the Christ child. There's four other modifiers about this main verb that I think will help us on this Christmas Eve cherish the treasure of worship. Notice, first of all, here's how they worshiped. They worshiped joyfully. You see this in verse 10, don't you? It says they were overwhelmed with joy. This speaks to their emotional posture. Something happened in here first. This is a very intriguing situation because they were overwhelmed with joy when they saw the star. Now, what did the star do that caused them such great joy? If you'll read the story, the star consistently moved and guided them to the place where Jesus was. At this point, verse 9 says the star stopped. You should circle that word in verse 9, I think it is. Because what is in their head the minute the star stops? This is the place. The king lives here. I don't know if they expected to see a child, but they believed, stopped, entered the house and saw Jesus and worshiped. Here's what's happening in their heart. They realize probably in the fullest way, we're not on a wild goose chase. This is not just a hunch. We're not just on some hunt. The star has stopped and this is where Jesus, the Christ child, the King of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah, the one that's been prophesied now, he has been born, he's here. This is the one. And so upon that realization that this was now reality, they became overwhelmed with joy. It's an interesting word, overwhelmed. It means uh, greatly great. It's kind of repetitious, isn't it? If I were to give you the two Greek words, it wouldn't make much sense to most of us. Just know one of them is the word mega. It's combined with a word that means in some places, in an adverb form, vehemently, almost violently. And so the best way to say it is exceeding great or greatly great or magnanimously great. It's, it's a little repetition on purpose. They, they experienced such inner joy that it was overwhelming. They could not contain it when they saw Jesus. You see, that's really what produces worship. It's uncontainable joy when you see Jesus. So this is much like the first look at a wedding. I mean, this, this moment here, this joyful worship is the seed of what's happening next. It's the preface. This is how it all begins. That first look, you know, when the guy sees the girl he's going to marry in a few hours and he realizes, oh good, this wasn't just a hunch. It's reality. She didn't run away. I'm not on a wild goose chase. She's actually going to marry me today, right? She's going to say, I do. He realizes there's something legitimate. It's reality. It's going to happen. And his heart is filled with joy. This is kind of the idea behind this now. So they did begin to worship joyfully. It plants the seed for what happens next when they worshiped humbly. Do you see their first posture? They fell on their knees after they entered the house and saw him. This really describes their 
physical posture. So you have an emotional posture, uncontainable joy. You have a physical posture, falling on their knees. This obviously symbolizes and represents humility, submission. It's a beautiful picture of of what they did in their worship. Now, let's just be very candid with each other on this Christmas Eve. That doesn't happen a lot in your church services. Maybe if you're a guest here and where you're from in your church, that may happen more. In our church, this doesn't happen a ton. Just to be very candid, right? Some of you get nervous now, like, what's he going to say next? I'm just stating the obvious. And yet I find it interesting that in the Bible, there's about nine words from the Old Testament that describe worship, and there's about seven to eight-ish in the New Testament. So we'll just call it 15 general words used to describe worship in the Bible, and most of them deal with physical postures of either bending, kneeling, or leaning. One writer said this, we have an impoverished view of worship in our current culture. He says, because in the Bible, when Jesus showed up, people fell down. And I read that and was immediately convicted that often my worship is just neck up like we talked about last week. And often I fail to give what I know in my heart. I fail to give that a physical posture. I'm going to tell you why, and I think you'll row this boat with me, because I'm watching the wrong people. I'm worried about what this person may say or the person behind me may think or the person that always hinders worship when we're watching the wrong people. But I want vision like Stephen and Tyler, don't you? Watching one person so that the joy in my heart is so uncontainable that it shows up in my body. Now hear me well, church. I do think this is an area where we can really grow in this next year. It doesn't mean that we leave behind neck up worship. It doesn't mean we leave behind a cranial understanding of important truths and doctrine. I think that's what breeds joy. I think that's what gives us a lot of these uncontainable emotions. But let's let the process work all the way through our body, amen, so that we're falling down, lifting our hands, clapping our hands, playing an instrument, raising our voices, saying amen, saying hallelujah. There's a number of things the Bible records as ways to worship Ways to express the uncontainable joy in your heart. And I'm praying this next year we'll see more of that as God fills us with joy as we see more and more clearly who Jesus is and worship him in a fully engaged manner. So they worshiped him joyfully. They worshiped him humbly. Next we see they worshiped him tangibly. Notice the phrases in the text, would you? They presented him with gifts. They opened their treasures. This speaks of a sacrificial posture. So you notice the postures taking place. There's an emotional posture. Then there's a physical posture. And then there's a sacrificial posture. These were wise men who often were like the king's cabinet. So they were bringing gifts for a king, which is why I don't think... They expected this to be a child, but when they saw that he was the one who fulfilled all of the prophecies and was clearly the long-awaited Christ, they gave him these gifts. Now, some have wondered, what were the gifts for? 
Some have thought they were symbolic because many of these spices and these gifts were used in burials. Perhaps, I don't know. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why the gifts were given. Here's what I think, just an opinion. If you read the text of Matthew, they make a quick trip to Egypt next to avoid Herod's slaughtering of little boys. And then they stay there in Egypt, have to come back from Egypt. I think that's a pretty expensive detour, wouldn't you say? With a newborn, long journey, finding a place to stay, and then having to come back. They settled in Nazareth. I think this was God's providential way of supplying their needs for what they weren't expecting. And gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that goes a long way when you're traveling, right? And God is so gracious and loving. And what these wise men did was sacrificially, and though it cost them, they tangibly worshiped. Now, here's what you may be hearing me say. I knew it, Todd. You're going for the year-end gift, aren't you? <laughs> no, I'm really not. Um, our church is quite sacrificial, generous. Continue to give. That's not what I'm going for because the Bible says that before you ever give anything tangible that is outside of you, you give what is closest to you that's tangible, and that is yourself. You see, you're tangible. You're flesh and blood. You're bone. You're human. So before you reach for your wallet, your checkbook, or your debit card, or you go online to make a gift and feel better about yourself, maybe even think, I'm going to earn something. Hey, why don't you do this instead? Give yourself to God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, Paul commends that church because he says, before you gave to my needs, you first gave of yourself to God. And this is what Romans 12, 2 says, catch this verse, that we're to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And then he ends that verse by saying this, this is your reasonable or expected form of worship. You know what God wants this Christmas Eve? He wants you. He wants your body involved in his purposes. He wants your life aimed at his vision, his heart for all nations. That's what God wants. Does that include your wallet, your schedule, your relationships? Sure it does. But those things aren't detached as if you give them and then you kind of stay secluded from God's agenda. When God gets us, he gets all of that. That's the tangible way I want to encourage you to give to God. Give yourself to God this morning. That will only happen when you see the fourth way they worshiped. They worshiped exclusively. You see two words in the verses? It says they saw the, say it with me, child. Singular use there, isn't it? And it says they worshiped, say it with me, him, singular. So there's no dualistic adoration happening here. The wise men see the star, it stops, they have great joy. They enter the house, they see the Christ child, Jesus, the one who perfectly fulfills all of God's promises and prophecies. They fall down and they only worship Jesus. They don't worship Mary. They're not praying to Mary. They don't worship Herod. They're not afraid of Herod. In fact, if you read the story, Herod says, when you find out where he is, come back and tell me. And God said to them, don't go back to Herod, go a different route. And who'd they listen to? God. They worshiped Jesus solely. 
singularly, exclusively. And let's just be frank, this is really what worship is. It's rejecting false gods, rejecting our idols, and giving our adoration to only one, Jesus Christ, the King. You see, within this simple passage of two verses, we really find, I think, what is a beautiful definition of worship. It's a goal for worship. It helps us understand this treasure we're looking at this week, this treasure of worship that comes out of the timeline of Christ's birth. Let's put some more meat to it and let's say it in a sentence, can we? Here's really what we see worship being from this biblical text. It's my emotional, physical, sacrificial, and singular adoration of Jesus Christ the King. And we're led in that by at least three guys, probably, right? These wise men, these magi. This is what they did when they first saw Jesus. They had a joyful posture. They had a humble posture, a, a, a tangible posture. They had an exclusive posture. It was from the emotional all the way to the singular. This is worship. And this is why I contend Christmas needs to be one of the most worshipful times of the year so that we see who was truly born. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the King. And this is what happened on that day at the house of Joseph. The wise men worshipped King Jesus. Now, I want to make sure you understand something. This fully engaged, head-to-toe response of the wise men, and that's what it was, right, church? Fully engaged, head-to-toe, internal, external. This response is the surest sign that these Gentile seekers had believed. Here's why. Uh, the proof that they believed was that they bowed. Now, I don't know when they believed. The text doesn't tell us. I asked our staff last Monday, I said, hey, when do you think the wise men actually believed that Jesus was the Son of God and the eternal Christ, God among us, the second person of the Trinity incarnate? When do you think that occurred in what we'd call saving faith? Some said it was the moment they entered the house. Some said it was the moment they left Babylon because why would you leave if you didn't believe? And we don't know from the scriptures. It's fun to talk about. My opinion is it's when they saw the star stop. And I like the words overcome with joy. It's almost like the gospel's explanation of regeneration. Like something happened in me when I saw the truth. God saved me. The reality of Jesus was front and center. And suddenly you find that all, everything inside's new and it starts changing the outside as well. One of those is you bow because you believed. You see, until you believe, you won't bow. Now, I want to qualify that with this rather stark statement. There is a day coming when every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But in that day, all those who have refused to bow because of belief in this day will bow in subjugation. They'll bow as the foe of our Lord. He will come as a conquering king, 
and every knee will bow, even his foes. Until that day, the invitation is always out there, come as a family and believe, trust in Jesus for salvation. You see, those right now who believe we are bowing because of salvation, we're his family. I urge you today on this Christmas Eve to come in that manner so that when he comes and it's too late to believe, you won't be forced to bow in subjugation. But I can assure you, there is a day coming when every knee will bow. I would much rather take the knee of salvation now and belong to God's family. Amen, church? If in your heart you're saying, Todd, I didn't know it was one of those two options. I didn't know that I would bow either way, but I don't want to bow one day as his foe and spend eternity separated from God. I want to bow today in salvation and trust Jesus alone as the only way to be saved. Oh man, my heart is thrilled if that's what you're saying and crying out in your heart to God. If that's you this morning, I just would encourage you right where you're seated just to say this to your heavenly Father. Say, Lord Jesus, Almighty God, I know that you sent Jesus as your Son and my Savior. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again as the only way that I can be forgiven of my sins. You ask for worship only to Jesus. So Lord, save me through the work of Jesus. I repent of trusting other things, of worshiping idols, and I turn and trust and worship only Jesus. And God, will you save me, forgive me, and give me eternal life through the work of Jesus? In that moment, God gives you the gift of eternal life, not because of what you've done or earned or what your last name is or where you're sitting or where you live or your income. He does it based on one thing, your faith in the finished work of Christ. And he grants us righteousness because of Christ. What a beautiful gift on Christmas Eve, amen. And then you belong to his family and you're spared, you're saved from having to face him as your foe. Much better to take a knee as his family. Amen, church? I just hope this morning that all of us will cherish and value the treasure of worshiping King Jesus, that we'll know that we have bowed to him in salvation, that we worship him on a regular, habitual, daily basis in emotional, physical, sacrificial, and singular ways, that he alone gets all of our attention. That's the treasure of worship.